As many of you know, Jody and I just got back from two weeks in Israel. Uh, it was mostly vacation. Uh, we went because Harold Wolf told me I should go and ride my bike with Camp Ramad to raise money for Tikva in Israel. And then, of course, you know, Harold and Carol's granddaughter became bat mitzvah, and he didn't come. Uh, it did 250 kilometers over five days, including five and a half miles, almost 10 kilometers up Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in Israel. I was the last one up the mountain, but I made it there on my own two feet and pedal power with a little bit of walking. Hardest thing I ever did, but, or on the bike anyway. And now that I've done it, I can say we'll never do it again. Uh, my wife did hiking, and we did all this for a good cause to raise money for, for the Tikva program, the special needs programs at Camp Ramah, uh, which I remember when I was a Roshida, when I was a division head at Camp Ramah in 1991 in Camp Ramah in Ojai, California. The Tikva program, the special needs program, was attached to my Aida. I've been involved with camp in some way, shape, or form since 1980, and I'm very familiar with the impact of this work. What I want to talk about today, though, is not that. I want to talk about the little bit of work I did while I was in Israel, because it relates to the message I shared with you on Shabbat of Pesach, having come back from Poland in order to go to see what was going on in the Ukraine and how the Jewish Agency, the Joint Distribution Committee, and the State of Israel were responding to the crisis in Ukraine and the work of literally saving the 200,000 Jews and people descended of Jews that would qualify for Aliyah to Israel under the law of return. And I want to connect it to this week's Torah reading because, again, uh, you know, when you study Torah, as I said with Harold, it's like it can't just be Besheret, or maybe it is just Besheret, that that Haftarah reading related to well-being, to health, including mental health. And this week's Torah reading relates to the notion of hope. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs the uh, late chief rabbi of Great Britain wrote extensively on the issue of hope. He has a whole booklet about it, many, many articles. And as it relates to this week's Torah reading to Parshat B'chukotai, he writes that Judaism is the principled rejection of tragedy in the name of hope. He calls to bear Peter Berger, the sociologist who writes that hope is a signal of transcendence, a point at which something beyond penetrates into the human situation. For Berger, there's nothing inevitable or even rational about hope. It can't be inferred from any facts from the past or the present. And many cultures from ancient Greece to even this very day they see hope as an illusion, as a fantasy, and that a mature response to our place in the universe is to accept a stoic, tragic nature, an acceptance of events that we can't understand. Judaism, writes Sachs, argues otherwise. 
that the universe is not deaf to our prayers, blind to our aspirations, and that we're therefore not wrong to strive for hope in a world that sometimes seems refusing to accept it, or rather accepts the inevitability and suffering and injustice. That's not the Jewish way. We work towards making the world better, we hope, in spite of the forces that seem stacked up against us. This week's Torah reading for Rabbi Sachs provides a very poignant example of how that works within our tradition. The tochacha, the curses, spell out the consequences for Israel's disobedience to God's commandments. And it's graphic. If you read it this morning in the Torah, it's quite disturbing. It should be rated mature plus. Israel will experience defeat and disaster. It will lose freedom of its land. People will go into exile. They'll suffer terrible persecutions. They'll turn on each other, sometimes in cannibalistic manners. And we read this passage, as I said, in an undertone. For it's hard to imagine any nation undergoing such a catastrophe and live to, tell the te live to tell the tale, of course, we have. We've undergone not only exile after exile and persecution after persecution, but even the worst persecution that human beings have ever perpetrated on another, the Holocaust, the Shoah, and yet we're still here. What's amazing about this passage, though, is that it doesn't end there. Immediately following the outline of the tochacha of the curses, at its climax, there's a great consolation within the Torah. Va'af gamzot, the Torah says. Yet, even in spite of everything that will happen if you disobey God's commandments, va'af gamzot, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, says the Torah. God will not reject us or abhor us so that we will be destroyed completely. God will not break God's covenant with us. But for our sake, says the Torah, God will remember the covenant that God made with our ancestors, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, who God brought out of the Egypt, out of the sight of the nations, in order to be our God. Ani Adonai Elohechem, I am the Lord your God, says the Torah. Now, of course, embedded within this great consolation is also a very difficult theology. Uh, God needs us somehow or other to suffer in order for us to turn back to God. I want to acknowledge that. None of this in the Torah is ever easy theologically. But within this simple phrase of three words, va'af gamzot, we find the kernel of hope for our people. And that is 
the past is not necessarily prologue to the present or the future. We always have the possibility for tshuva, for return, for repentance, to learn from our mistakes and to return to God. And God is telling us, immediately following the outlining of these tohacha, of these curses, of what happens if we don't follow God's ways, God is telling us that the moment we learn our lesson and we turn back, we seek to return again, God will be there for us. Israel may suffer, says Jonathan Sachs, but it will never die. And we know this to be our history. Now there's an echo of this notion in the prophet of Ezekiel as well. The prophet sees the, uh, one of the most beautiful prophecies in the entire Tanakh, in the entire t Bible. Ezekiel sees a valley of dry bones which gradually come together, taking on flesh and sinews and ligaments and come to life again. It's a prophecy of return to Israel in which Ezekiel recalls that God says to him, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. Our hope is lost. We're cut off. Therefore, prophesize to these bones and say to them, this is what Adonai, what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. To bring life again to those who are dead. Some have read that literally in terms of resurrection, but Ezekiel is speaking here clearly a metaphor. That through Israel's return to God, God will return the people of Israel to the land of Israel. Now, we know how profound a message this is. And we understand the implications from 1948, three years after the Holocaust to the establishment of the state of Israel. And how prophetically Naftali Hertz Imber alluded to that text of Ezekiel in writing the words for the song that eventually became Israel's national anthem. Odlo avda tikva tenu. Our hope is not yet lost. It's not a coincidence or by accident that Hatikva, the hope, became Israel's national anthem. Now, where does hope come from? Berger sees it as a constitutive part of our humanity that human existence is always oriented towards the future. But for us, as Jews, our hope comes from the belief that God exists, that God cares about us, that God has made a covenant with humanity, a further covenant with the Jewish people, and that God chose to be a living example of faith. And that covenant 
informs the way in which we read our history. That's what I was thinking about when I was in Israel a week ago, two weeks ago, tomorrow, and I went to visit a Ukrainian absorption center in Israel. Now, when I came back from Poland, I shared with you the story of Lilia, a vascular surgeon and her two young daughters and her two very big dogs who got into a very small four-door car and had to drive eight days from Kharkiv to Warsaw, where every hour she had to check the internet in order to see where the Russian troops were to take the most circuitous route you can imagine to safety because she understood that three women caught by Russian soldiers would be bad. And that she and her daughters, if they were caught, would likely not survive. It was a tremendous act of courage for her and her daughters to leave. Eight days, not knowing where they're gonna get gas, not knowing where they were gonna get food, not knowing what route they were going to take, and at every moment, scared literally to death that their lives would end. But they made it because of the work of the Jewish agency and the Jewish people. I shared a map then that showed all the places where the Jewish agency had already established an infrastructure that prepared itself for the war as we knew it was coming. And because Lilia and thousands of other Ukrainian Jews and those descended from Jews had access to the Jewish agency, in each stop along the way, there was someone there to meet them, to provide them with food, to provide them with gas, and to give them bribe money for both the Russian soldiers and the Ukrainian soldiers to get from point A to point B to point C to eventually Warsaw. And she and her family, like thousands of others, once they got there, the Jewish agency bought 18 hotels full out for six months where any Ukrainian Jewish refugee could come and find shelter for up to 30 days. And anybody who came to the Jewish agency, Jewish or not, could find it as well. We didn't turn anybody away because we learned from our own history that it's not just about us, it's about all people. And I said to you, and this is still true, for the first time in Jewish history, it is an advantage to be a Jewish refugee because of the state of Israel and the work of the Jewish agency and our federation system and the Jews worldwide. Lilia got to Ukraine, or I'm sorry, got to Warsaw. And when I met her two days later, she was gonna be on a plane to Israel. A three-week turnaround from leaving her house in Kharkiv to arriving in Israel. I met up with her. I followed up with her two weeks ago. When she got to Israel, she, like 20,000 other people already in a three-month period, found hotel space waiting for them where they could find refuge for 30 days. Food, shelter, medical care, trauma therapy, upan, job training, citizenship, 30 days. 
And already, Lilia and her daughters are in an apartment in Bat Yam, in south of Tel Aviv. Her seven-year-old Sonia, who you might remember wiped away the tears off her mom's cheeks when she was losing it because of the emotional toll of everything she was going through and said to her mom, seven years old, don't worry, mommy, you'll be okay. Sonia's thriving in school already in Israel, learning Hebrew, making friends, feeling safe. Her 15-year-old is thriving too. She's annoyed that she's in a class that's not challenging enough for her. She's looking to move up to a higher level. But the kids are thriving. And Lily is thriving all within a period of six to eight weeks. And this story of Lilia is not just Lilia, it's everyone. I met a, a psychologist who fled with his family and who's thriving as well. Who, when they made it to the refugee sites and then to Israel, were shocked by the welcome that they received, the hugs, the tears, the support. Now, it's not perfect. They complained about Israel's bureaucracy, and I shared with them the struggles that even Jody and I are having with Canada's bureaucracy in terms of my wife getting licensed to be a nurse here, and Lily is a surgeon, so she's experiencing that in Israel as well. But when I asked them, what did they want the Jews in Toronto to know and to understand about their experience, every single person I met with said the same thing. We want to thank the state of Israel. We want to thank the Jewish agency. We want to thank the Jewish people because we are here and we are safe and we believe which we weren't sure about when we were leaving Ukraine. We believe that we have a future. We have hope. We have hope. For decades, the Jewish people have been reminding ourselves of this story. Never again. Never again will the Jewish people be victims and subjugated solely by the whims of other forces. That the importance, one of the importance, not the only importance, if you read Zionist history and you understand the establishment of the state of Israel, but certainly one of the primary importance, one of the primary reasons for the existence of the state of Israel is never again that Jews anywhere in the world where they're persecuted, where they're forced to flee, when they have to become refugees, they will have a place to go. That's what's unfolding now before our very eyes. Not only do they have a place to go, but because of our experience with absorbing a million and a half Russian immigrants in the late 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, a million and a half people over a 15-year period, Israel has the infrastructure and the know-how of how to bring mass numbers of people to Israel and absorb them into the country. And we did that with the Ethiopians, although the Ethiopian absorption issue is much different because Ukrainians and Russians are Western, and so there are more similarities culturally 
of arriving in Israel than there are for the Ethiopians. An Ethiopian absorption takes about two years. The average length of time for Ukrainians and Russians is about seven to nine months. We are seeing all this happen now in a period of three months. It's been accelerated and it's working. There are currently 20,000 new Ukrainian and Russian Olim immigrants in Israel as a result of the Ukrainian war. 20,000. And as they come in within 30 days, they have a home, a new home. And they begin job training and upon in order to absorb themselves into Israeli life. There is an expectation of a possible another 20,000 to come before the end of this calendar year. 40,000 people in a nine-month period. And I can tell you it costs $5,000 a person to get them from Ukraine to safety in Eastern Europe and then on a plane to Israel and to land and be in Israel for 30 days before they move on. $5,000 a person. How many lives will we save? That's the goal right now, is to raise the money necessary for the Jewish agency and federation in order to do that. So just think about it. 40,000 people times $5,000 is a $180 million campaign. The government of Israel is going to pay for a lot of that. The government of Israel pays for the absorption and all the work that happens afterwards. We in the diaspora are being asked to contribute for the immediate needs of refuge. So when Federation begins its campaign, both for our local needs as well as for the global needs, just remember this. We know what it takes to save a single life. And me share hakayam nefesh echad Yisrael ki ilu kayam haolam the one who saves a single life in Israel is as if they save an entire world. And that's what we're talking about. The successful aliyah of these people will be dependent upon the success of their children integrating into Israeli society. Because even those who might want to go back to Ukraine when God willing this is all done, it's not going to happen easily. Ukraine has been laid waste by the Russians. It's going to take a Marshall Plan to rebuild this country, it's going to take decades before there's even a home for many people to return to. But what I want to share with you is that notion of hope. From tochacha to tikva, from curse to hope. It happens theologically because God doesn't forget us. But that theology only matters when we take that covenant seriously and we don't forget each other as well. God acts through us. When we act in a godly manner, when we respond to the tochacha, to the curses of the world, as we're doing for those Jews caught up in the war of Ukraine, we provide them with hope. And it's not a slogan, and it's not hyperbole. I've heard it 
from the people that are living through it. It's real. That's what happens when we take these Torah values seriously. And we take the lessons of the past in order to respond and create a better future. Od lo avda tikvatenu. Our hope is not yet lost. Hatikva, Israel, both the people and the state, we are the hope for thousands of people today. Let's not let them down.